Billy said a moment ago that uh, I was going to be speaking shortly, and uh, I don't know if that was wistful thinking or not. <coughs> I, I uh, have decided to uh, try to cut down the message that I gave in the earlier service. The weather really sort of played a trick on people this morning. Most folks are coming to the first service because it's a lot cooler, but uh, for some strange reason, the first service was just, uh, it was beastly hot in here and people were expiring all over the place, so um, I decided that I would try to cut this thing down to size. Uh, my, years ago, my father told me a story about a little boy who was being conducted on a tour of the church building by his father. And as they, uh, as they went through the auditorium, there was a, a list of men that had been uh, killed in the Second World War on the back wall. And the little boy said, what is that, Dad? And his father said, well, those are the people that died in the service. And the uh, <laughs> little boy said, which service, Dad, the first service or the second service? <clears throat> so to uh, keep you alive, I'm going to cut this thing down. Turn to uh, the seventh chapter of Acts, please. Acts 7. Bernard Shaw said of Acts 7 that a quite intolerable young speaker named Stephen delivered an oration to the council in which he first inflicted on them a tedious sketch of the history of Israel with which they were presumably as well acquainted as he, and then reviled them in the most insulting terms as stiff-necked and uncircumcised. Finally, after boring them to the utmost bearable extremity, he looked up and declared that he saw the heavens open and Christ standing on the right hand of God. This was too much. They threw him out of the city and stoned him to death. It was a severe way of suppressing a tactless and conceited bore. Uh, I have to confess, the first time I read through Acts 7, I probably had some of the same thoughts. I wondered, what in the world is going on here? Stephen delivers what seems to be a long... Uh, historical review of Israel's history, a history which everyone in his audience would be familiar with, and then for no apparent reason he turns on them and insults them. It does seem to be the case, but it, of course, is not what happens at all. Stephen's argument is very subtle, but it's very telling. It's a good one. This was Paul, uh, uh, Stephen's defense of the gospel, not of himself, if it were a defense of himself, we couldn't say much for the defense because he, he uh, in the end, he was much worse off than he was in the beginning. It's not a defense of himself, it's a defense of the gospel, and it actually became a pattern defense for all later Christian apologists, those who uh, had the responsibility for defending the Christian faith before uh, the pagan world. Let me just say that this uh, message grew out of a false charge that was leveled at Stephen. Back in chapter 6, verse 11, we're told that they secretly induced men, they suborned witnesses to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then more specifically in verse 15, they put forward false witnesses who said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, uh, you can pick up the, the contempt and derision in that uh, phrase, this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Those were the charges that were leveled at Stephen. If they sound familiar, it's because they should be. Those were the same charges that were leveled at Jesus. Uh, Mark tells us that in his trial, this uh, 
the statement that he had made early in his ministry about tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in, third, in three days was, uh, was resurrected. Uh, as we know, he was not at all talking about the building. He wasn't talking about Herod's temple. He was talking about his body, which they would tear down and it would be rebuilt through the resurrection in three days. But they either misapplied or they distorted his words, applied into the temple, and that's what got Jesus in trouble. That was one of the statements that they, uh, that they misused against him. But this seems to be the same sort of thing. We're not quite sure what Stephen said, although we can infer certain things from his message. But uh, these were the charges that he's answering, that he was guilty of uh, treason. He was saying... Uh, things that were unlawful against Moses and the law, and specifically about this holy place, that is the temple. Now, this morning I tried to give a, an overview of this rather lengthy uh, verse and a chapter, rather, and that's where people begin to fog out. The fans came out, and, and I'm not going to do that again this morning. I'll just go through and pick and choose certain verses and try to give you the highlight of the sermon. You can read it for yourself. He draws a line historically from Abraham down to Solomon, and he intertwines two themes through that history. The first is that God has never confined himself to one locality, and this, of course, would be an assault upon their idea that the temple was the holy site, the only holy site in the world, the only place uh, where God could be manifested and where his word could be, could be known. And uh, what Stephen labors to uh, say and says very well is that uh, God has revealed himself in various places throughout history to people even outside of, of Israel. He is not confined to one locality. His presence is not, and neither are the people of God. That's the first theme. The second theme is that uh, the very people who should have responded, uh, the people he chose to be his, his vehicle for proclaiming the gospel, the good news to the world, the nation of Israel, whenever God did reveal himself to them, they rejected him. Now, those are the two, two themes that, that overlap uh, and intertwine through the, uh, through the message. Now, let's see if we can uh, pull this together for you. Stephen begins his history with Abraham, which is the right place to begin any history of Israel. He was the father of the Jewish race. We're told in verse 2, that the God of glory appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And that's the key word. Abram was, uh, was not a believer initially. He was a pagan. He was an idolater. He lived in Babylon, in, in the land of the Chal Chaldeans. That's the older name for Babylon. He was raised in Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was a moon-worshipping center for the ancient world. And apparently Abraham was a, was a moon worshiper. Moon worship was one of the most decadent, defiling, wretched religions on the face of the earth. And apparently Abraham was a part of that environment. It was there that God spoke to Abraham. Not in Jerusalem, not even in the promised land, but outside the promised land while he was still in Mesopotamia. You see the point? God revealed himself, the God of glory, the God that we know revealed himself to Abraham before he came to Haran, which is in north Syria, uh, very close to the land of Canaan. The point is, before he even was anywhere near Canaan, God revealed himself to him. And then he makes three other points in the paragraph from 1 through 8. In verse 5, he had no inheritance in the land. Abraham never possessed a square inch of, of land. 
in uh, Palestine. The only plot of ground he ever had was a burial site. And then in verse 6, there is the prediction to the effect that God's people would live in a foreign land. They would be aliens for 400 years, and God would work with them outside the promised land. And finally in verse 8, that Abraham was given the covenant of circumcision, the sign of the unique relationship that he had with God long before he gained any possession in the land. The whole point is this. Abraham had everything that he needed in terms of his relationship with God before he ever had any permanent possession in the land of Canaan. In other words, God's, the reality of the relationship between Abraham and God had nothing whatever to do with where he was. God revealed himself in Mesopotamia, again in Haran, gave him the sign of circumcision and uh, the promise uh, of a lasting possession, but not the reality of that possession before he had uh, before he was located in the land itself. Verse 8 is a bridge between the story of Abraham and the story of Joseph. We're told that he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him. Isaac became the father of Jacob, Abraham's grandson, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So they have a long period of history from about 2000 B.C. to 1800 B.C. Uh, uh, described in, in one verse. And then in verse 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him down in Egypt where they worshipped uh, ibis-headed uh, uh, birdmen and dung beetles. Uh, Egypt had, again, some of the most depraved forms of, of worship. But even there, God was with Joseph. And uh, Jacob, in verse 15, went down to Egypt, and uh, God was with him there. And then he was buried in Shechem. Very subtle sort of thing, which would have struck home to Stephen's listeners. At the time Stephen uh, gave this uh, discourse, Shechem was in the hands of the Samaritans, the hated Samaritans. It was not considered part of the promised land. And Stephen's point is that one of the most revered sites, one of the great holy sites of Israel, where the patriarchs were buried, was in Samaria, of all places, not in the land of Canaan. Then he picks up the story of Moses, develops that at length, makes the point in verse 29 that Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him. Where? Not in the land of Canaan, but in the wilderness of Sinai, which in verse 33 he describes as holy ground. And the Lord spoke to him from the burning bush. He said, take off your sandals. The place in which you're standing is holy ground. Where was it? Canaan? Nope. It was in, uh, in Arabia in southern Arabia. God was with him there in the desert. God was with him while he was in Midian. He was working out his plan to save his people, and he was doing it not in the land of Canaan, but way outside the land, what would be considered uh, pagan territory to the Jews of, of Stephen's day. And then in verse 36, this man performed wonders and signs. Where? In Canaan? No, in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea. And in the wilderness, that's where God worked out his, his will through, through uh, Moses. And then in verse 38, a most interesting verse, this is the one who was in the congregation. And if you look in the margin, if you have a New American Standard, it's the word for church, ecclesia. There was a church in the wilderness. There was the angel who was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in the bush and who appeared in the Shekinah, the the flame of fire by day and the cloud, the cloud of fire by night, rather, and the cloud of smoke by day, which represented the presence of God directing them through the wilderness. And they had, they had the living oracles. They had the word of God given to them. Where? 
again in the wilderness. In other words, they had everything that they needed in the wilderness. They were a congregation gathered around God, and uh, they had the Word of God, and they had the angel of the Lord who led them through the wilderness. And then uh, he jumps way ahead from the time of Moses, which would be about 15th or 14th century B.C., on down to the time of, of Solomon, David first, and then Solomon, David, who lived about 1,000 B.C. And uh, in verse 45, he says, uh, They received it, that is, the tabernacle, in their turn. Our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. And David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house. And there's a contrast here between a temporary dwelling place, a skin tent uh, that David desired for God, and a more permanent uh, uh, building, a building that uh, Solomon constructed. Now, he's not saying that Solomon did anything wrong in constructing the temple because he simply followed the pattern that the prophets uh, had given to him. But he is making a contrast between the more temporary dwelling which David envisioned and the more permanent structure which Solomon actually built. And all the way through, Stephen's point is, is, is well taken, easy to understand. He's saying God has, has been revealing himself from time to time to people outside the land. He's worked with various individuals in Babylon, up in Syria, what would be Lebanon today, down in Egypt and down in uh, southwest Arabia and, and the, in all of these places, these geographical locations that he's given to us, God has been at work revealing himself. Places are holy not because uh, they are designated as holy, but because God is there. That's the point. Now, Stephen's conclusion follows in 748, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. That's very obvious. There are some houses in which he dwells, but he's not limited. He's not confined to those localities. As the prophet says, and there he quotes from, uh, from Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is, my footstool, is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And Isaiah goes on saying, All these things have been, but to this man will I look, even to him that's poor and of a contrite spirit, in whose heart trembles at my word. In other words, it's not the place, it's the person that God indwells people, not houses. And it was never his intention to be located exclusively at the temple in, in Jerusalem. And this must have hit like a bombshell on these, on these listeners. They knew exactly what he was saying. That's why they took him out and stoned him. Because uh, there was in, in Judaism an exclusivism that said, you can only find God at our temple. If you want to know God, you come here to Jerusalem. And that's where he reveals himself. No other place. Stephen says, not true not true. Just think back on your own history and see where God has revealed himself in various points around the world. Now, you see, this is the theological preparation for the expulsion of the church from Jerusalem and their dispersion throughout the whole world. Uh, Saul provided the uh, physical reason for that dispersion. Stephen provided a theological basis for it. They could go out from Jerusalem and make proclamation of the gospel throughout the entire Roman Empire because they realized now people didn't have to go to Jerusalem to find God. They could find him everywhere. See? Now, I'm sure you're asking, what, what's, the, what's the relevance of this passage for us today? Well, 
extremely relevant in terms of this building over on the corner of Eustick and Maple Grove. That building is not a holy place. That is a building. That's all it is. That's not even the church. In fact, we don't even want to put that sign on the front, Cole Community Church. What, what we want to put there is Cole Community Church meets here because that's not the church. We all have a tendency, I do it too, to, to use that to term, misapply that term. I, I talk about going to church. Actually, we go to be with the church. We do not go to church. That's not the church. It's just a building. And its significance is drawn from the fact that God's people is there. It's a beautiful building. But the, the beauty of that building is not going to attract and hold anyone, basically. It's the beauty of God's people that will attract and, and hold others. Someone said to me the other day that uh, in their experience, and it's someone who's been around a lot, been through a lot of church building programs, said in, in his experience, whenever a church goes through a building program, there's always a letdown afterward. Now, I can't speak for myself because I've never been one, through one. This is my first and last, I hope. So I, I can't speak personally, but but uh, he may be right. And, and, I, and thinking that through this week, I, this week, I think I understand why. It's because people have unrealistic expectations about a building. They think it's somehow it's going to make us more spiritual. We're going to have a greater impact upon our community because we have a building. That's nonsense. It's not going to be any easier to live together than it is in this building. In fact, it may be even more difficult. It's not going to make us more attractive. Someone again said the other day that they were looking forward to the building being built so they could invite some friends. And I, and I knew what they were thinking because it is difficult, particularly for parents of, of young children in, in this situation. But again, it's not the beauty of the building that attracts. It's the beauty of, of God's people. You see that? I have a friend down in the Deep South who wrote me recently and told me that he was serving in a church, a downtown, a metropolitan church, and it was located in a in a, a place where they were, uh, uh, they were land-bound. They, they, they simply had no way to expand unless they went up, and the proposal was made to the congregation that they tear the building down and start over and build a, a multi-story structure, and it was vetoed by the congregation because 50 years before, that building was dedicated to God, and therefore it, was, uh, it couldn't be touched. Now, that's a misunderstanding of the purpose of a building. A building is just a building, that's all made out of the same materials as your house. There's nothing special about that building. The significance of that building comes from the presence of God's people there. You are the church. You are the house of God, Paul says. We're his dwelling place. I still cringe every time I see Sunday school materials that have a picture of a church building and a caption underneath that says, this is God's house. That is not God's house. That's a building. That's all it is. You're God's house. You're God's sanctuary. And we need to keep that in, in perspective. It's just a building. That's all it is. Nothing more, nothing less. Useful. I'm glad we have it. I'm thankful to God that he made it possible. But let's don't focus on the building. It won't change us one bit. Um, William Cooper put it this way. Jesus... Where your people meet, there they behold your mercy seat. Where they seek you, you are found, and every place is hallowed ground. 
see, the corollary of the fact that that's not hallowed ground in itself is that wherever you go is hallowed ground because you are the church. Someone asked Dick Halverson once where his church was. They were thinking geographically, what, what corner? And he said, well, let's see, it's Monday morning. My church is washing dishes and teaching school and, and welding and repairing automobiles, serving on the floor of the, of the Senate. See, that's the way we have to look at the church. Wherever we go becomes hallowed ground. One of the great stories in the Old Testament is the account of Jacob when he fled from home and uh, you know, he had deceived his brother and he had deceived his father. And there was no hope of going back. He was desperate, homesick, lonely, guilt-ridden. And he came up to a little place called Bethel, which had been a pagan worship site for centuries. It was apparently in ruins when Jacob came there and, and he gathered some rocks together made a little pin so he could protect himself if someone tried to assault him in the middle of the night there was nobody around he was desperately lonely and he went rolled out his sleeping bag and went to sleep and in the middle of the night he had a dream and he saw a ladder reaching from his head up to heaven and angels traversing the, the ladder going up to, to heaven and then coming back from heaven to earth and uh, of course the significance of that dream is that Jacob had access to God the angels are messengers of God to serve the people of God. And they were traveling back and forth from Jacob to heaven. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. The pagan worship site. But it was a holy site to Jacob because he realized God was in that place. And we can say the same thing to all of us. Your kitchen, your sink full of dirty dishes, your washing machine, your shop, your office, your locker room. Your workbench is a holy site because you're there. And that means that God is present. Someone told me this uh, last week that the average woman opens 788 cans a year. That's a remarkable uh, statistic. And uh, perhaps you, you're, you feel that the only uh, thing you contribute to life is that you opened 789 last year. You beat the average. But, but you see, if you have that concept of your kitchen... It, it dignifies and glorifies your role as a homemaker and as a, as a cook and as a maid or whatever it is that you have to do for that, for that day. Now, there is another theme in Acts uh, 7, uh, which I've already mentioned. It's this uh, idea of opposition throughout, and I'll simply uh, refer to the passages where... Um, where that sort of thing is mentioned in verse 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery, Shanghai him and sent him off to Egypt. Verse 25, Moses, he says, was not understood. And in verse 27, they say to him, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? And in verse 35, we're told that they disowned Moses. This Moses, which seems to be parallel with 6-4, where they refer to this Nazarene Jesus, and in verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. All, all down the line, there was opposition to God's plan to use his people to bring salvation to the world. And that's why Stephen says in verse 50, when you men are a bunch of stiff-necked and uncircumcised people, you're like the Gentiles. You may be circumcised in body, but you're uncircumcised in heart. You're just as disobedient as as they are. And you're, 
You've always resisted the Holy Spirit. You're doing just what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep. You see, he applies that same principle to them. Israel throughout our history has invaded against God and his, his plan to save the world. And you're just one of that same bunch of rebels. You're no better than they. You rejected the coming righteous one. We don't have time to talk about it, but there are some, some fascinating, subtle references throughout the, the message to Jesus himself. Uh, back in uh, verse 13, he plays on the idea that Joseph was rejected the first time, but the second time he revealed himself for who he was. And we know exactly what he was thinking about, our Lord's second coming. And then in verse 35, this Moses, I've already referred to the parallel with, with 614 and this Nazarene. And he makes the point that Moses is simply a type of the prophet who is to come. So he, he uh, drives his argument home. You're just like the, the nation of Israel in times past. You have repeatedly rejected the God who came to save you and used you to, to save the world. And that's why they took up stones to stoning. We can see why they reacted so violently. But, of course, he was right. He was right. Now, none of their efforts frustrated God. It's clear from the story that uh, God wasn't in any way thwarted. When they persecuted Joseph, God simply used that opportunity to send a forerunner to Egypt to save his people. Joseph later says, you, you meant it to his brothers. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And when Moses was opposed, he went off into the wilderness, and that became the proving ground for this man and and, and that's the spot where he was prepared to become God's deliverer. And their opposition to the apostles in Jerusalem, we know, looking back from our vantage point in history, resulted in the church being spread all over the world. So they weren't going to frustrate God, but they were going to miss out on God's plan to use them to save the world. Now, I had a number of other things I wanted to say, but I'm, I'm going to stop at that point and, and simply say... And I'm sure all of us could say the same thing, that we don't want to be in that position of opposing God's plan to use us. God's going to reach the city of Boise with or without us. We're not going to frustrate God. He's sovereign. And His will is going to be performed, whether we're a part of it or not. But our enjoyment of, of that plan and our participation in it and our alignment with Him is dependent upon the measure of our submission and obedience to him. Now, we're inclined, when we, when we think about obedience, we're inclined to think of the big sins like adultery and murder and thievery and bearing false witness and, and uh, those, those matters. And those are serious sins. And any of us is capable at any time of falling into those sins. Let's not kid ourselves. As Paul puts it, if the the person who thinks that he stands is the one who's most likely to fall. So let's not be deceived. But I do not think that it is those sins that, that destroy our usefulness primarily as a body of Christians. Those things can be dealt with. What destroys the effectiveness and efficiency of the church are the sins of the spirit, resentment and, and bitterness, and an unforgiving heart and intolerance and an unwillingness to uh, be unnoticed 
and overlooked. Those are the things that destroy our effectiveness. What will impact our community is not a building or a worship service or the way we dress or a choir or stained glass windows, as beautiful as those things may be. What will impact our community is a, a group of loving people. The world is desperately looking for that, and it is nowhere found except in, in the body of Christ when we function as we should. And it has been my, it is my conviction, again, based not so much on my own experience because I haven't been there, but upon what people have told me, that building programs can offer trigger attitudes that can virtually destroy the effectiveness of a body of Christians. That seems unlikely, but it can happen. And it happens over the smallest things. We're going to move over to that building, and uh, some of you teachers are going to, going to discover that you don't have windows in your your room and the people across the hall have windows and uh, the cabinets will not be big enough or there won't be any cabinets because in some cases we couldn't afford to put them in or you won't like the color scheme you know, there's no accounting for taste the old lady said when she kissed the cow uh, aesthetics is a funny thing and what's very tasteful and decorous to one person uh, may look terrible to someone else and there'll be all sorts of things like that that the enemy will use to divide and conquer us. And we must not be ignorant of his devices. Here's an opportunity for us to make this move and to do so in a spirit of love and tolerance and patience and understanding. And I had the greatest illustration of that just this past week. We've had two women who are responsible for decorating certain portions of the building. And because of a mistake by the elders, both women were given the charge to decorate one room. And uh, they came up with color schemes that were quite different, both acceptable, both very nice, but different. And guess who had to decide? And it was tough because there, it wasn't a question of right or wrong or, or any of those factors. It was just who would prevail. And both would have been acceptable. And uh, I had to weigh the thing and finally make the decision. And, and I knew that I, it was a no-win situation. And I finally had to go to one of the women and say, I'm sorry, we'll have to go with the other plan. And her eyes filled up with tears. And then she said, all right, that's okay. It's all right. No problem. And she went on about her business decorating other portions of the building and hanging wallpaper. And I thought, now that's an illustration of a yielded neck and a circumcised heart. You see, that's what it means to be circumcised in heart, to cut off the, the flesh, to put away the old life, the selfishness and the, and the self-absorption, self-centeredness that, that divides us. And that's the spirit that we've got to carry with us through the next, next few weeks as we adjust to that new building. And if we do, there will be a lot of tough times. It's not going to be easy. And we'll all have to be tolerant and patient. But by God's grace, I believe this is the thing that will make us love each other even more and become an opportunity for us to live out before our community the goodness of our, of our Lord Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Father, who of us is sufficient for these things? And we thank you that our sufficiency is in God who has qualified us to be servants of the new covenant.
We, uh, we thank you that you give us the grace to be what you want us to be. You know our initial reactions and, and our natural tendency to want to think in terms of our own interests and our own needs. But uh, in truth, the old life has been put to death. It has no claim over us, no right to rule. And we ask that we would not only say that in, in mind but in heart, commit ourselves to it, be willing to set aside our own dreams and desires and to labor, if necessary, unnoticed and unrecognized, and to be the men and women that you've called us to be. Lord, we pray today for Dr. Graham, and we ask that you would, would strengthen him, lift from him the, the uh, weariness and fatigue, and uh, give him new strength, give him a clear mind, the ability to express himself, use us as we serve you this afternoon in various ways. We ask that the people that we bring would be open to respond to the gospel, and many today would find you to be the one that they've looked, looked for all their life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.